you know, as I was praying about the sermon, I actually had a couple different introductions laid out, and I'm going to do the second introduction. Um, and share a little about when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, and it was a long time ago. Uh, a long, long time ago. We immigrated to the United States in 72, and uh, we came to Chicago, which most people don't know was a very racist city back in the 70s. It was really bad. And so growing up in school, I had these, like a lot of repressed members of being bullied. Anybody been bullied when you were younger? Well, it's because, you know, I didn't look like everybody else. And in fact, it was pretty bad. People, I remember times where I was cornered and I had to fight for my life. It felt like, you know, with, with always the odds. I don't know, my stories, all the odds are always against me. I don't know if it's, it felt like that. And so I grew up with that. I got used to that a bit. You get used to kind of um, uh, showing yourself to be a little tough and finding a way to squirm and, uh, along the way. But we moved out to the suburbs, and I didn't realize that bullying would follow there. And so when I was a freshman, um, I had gone to a school that was not the school that most of my friends had gone to. So I didn't know anybody. And it was a school of people with a lot of money, because it was a Catholic school that was uh, took a lot of money to get to. And I just didn't know how to navigate the system, and I looked really weird. I was one of the only Asians that was in that area, in that school. And so I remember this, just maybe the second week of, the, of my freshman year, I started getting picked on and by guys from the football team, one guy in particular. And I don't know why he kind of chose me, you know, because I, I got, I, one of the ways I navigated through getting bullied was I was kind of big for my age. Um, and then even being Asian helped me. I remember when I was in fifth grade, the bully was a girl, her name was Carla Vargas. <laughs> I remember her name, because all of my friends were deathly afraid of her. She could outrest armors for everybody, she was bigger, and she would like say, you, after school, meet me in the yard, and then they would be trembling. But every time she looked at me, she had seen Bruce Lee, and she thought, well, he know, I know Kung Fu, she never touched me. But this situation was different. This was really different. In fact, it was scary. He actually kind of called me out, and he says, tomorrow, after, after school, this parking lot, I'm gonna beat the crap out of you. I'm like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I like to try to be invisible. Usually you're invisible, but even when you try to be, when a bullying targets you, there's nothing you can do. And I knew he had football players that were his friends. I didn't know, every time he would see me in the hall, he would, he would yell out, hey you, after school, the parking lot over there. And I was actually feeling trapped. I don't know if you ever felt that before. Like, I could figure that I could try to fight my way through, but bigger guys, and I don't know who was gonna show up, I had no friends. I was very resource poor. And this is the suburbs. What used to work in the hood didn't work out here. I actually was very afraid. I remember not sleeping that night. I remember the next day just really feeling trapped. What do I do? How do I get this? I couldn't tell the administration. Because if they find out you tattle, you get worse. Couldn't tell my parents. My parents didn't understand. They wouldn't be able to do anything. I didn't have any backup. And so I remember just thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to get the beat crap on me, the crap beat on me. And I showed up. And I think he was surprised that I showed up. Because uh, I think he was expecting that, oh, that, that comrade didn't show up. I was really afraid. Now, that comrade didn't show up. I showed up. And I wasn't like, come on, let's go. It was more of like, okay, let's see what's going on here. And uh, I think he was a little surprised, so he kind of said, I was just joking, I was joking, he walked off. <laughs> but to this day, I remember what it felt like to be trapped. Not knowing, okay, how do I get out of this situation? I, I'm resource poor. I don't have the backup, I don't have the, the, the tactics, and I'm in trouble. And there have been many times in my life whether it was because of a bully or because of finances where I got into debt. And no matter what you do, you cannot get out of this mounting debt. 
There have been times where I felt trapped by my own sins, my own mistakes, that my shame was actually coming after me. I didn't know what to do. I don't know if you ever felt that. It is a very common experience for those living in a broken world, that you feel like you are resource poor. You don't know how to get through the circumstances. Something is threatening you, and you feel despair. You feel a sense of hopelessness. Um, I spent a lot of my life actually learning how to be very resourceful. Finding the things that I need so that I don't have to feel trapped like that. But I can tell you, the times where I've experienced God coming to my aid, knowing my situation, having marinated in my sense of being trapped in the spirit long enough to realize God is only my only Savior, for Him to come through, whether financially, relationally, spiritually, I've come to realize God is a really good deliverer. Jesus really does save. He does see us, see, he see me my whole life, when I couldn't fix my circumstances, when I couldn't make a way, he finds a way. And we're looking at actually stories and scriptures where people experience that. They've been stuck in illness for 12 years and there's no doctor can heal her. And one touch of Jesus' cloak, he's not even aware of it first, and she's immediately healed. People who are trapped by demonic powers, possessed, whether it's by their own decisions that led them down that path or not. And they're stuck being radically delivered out of sickness, out of poverty, out of all kinds of contexts. When Jesus comes, he frees. There's a beautiful verse that describes how if, if you have the Son, then you are free, you are free indeed. We're going to reflect on that as we reflect on how Jesus comes to a world that's trapped in so many ways that doesn't know how to navigate, that's stuck, that's in prison, that's, that, that's resource poor. And he is the one who delivers them through. And so we're actually in a series called To the Vulnerable. Sorry, the, 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 the fonts actually didn't work out exactly right. To the Vulnerable. That during this season of Advent, we remember when Jesus came, he came as one who experienced the fullness of our weakness of our vulnerability. To know what it's like to, to run from the massive bully Herod for his life as Herod wipes out a whole town of boys trying to get to him. To feel the bullying that he must have experienced in Nazareth growing up. To feel what it's like to be poor. We know Jesus was poor. When he was born, there's actually going to give a sacrifice and uh, you can tell by the kind of sacrifice that he gives, parents gives, two pigeons. It's like 99 cents chicken, 99 cents pound chicken versus the, the ram that we're supposed to give for a son. He is coming into a situation where he is so vulnerable. And yet, as he starts his ministry, as we read today, what does he do? He declares that he is the one that has come to deliver, to free, to, to proclaim good news and freedom for the poor, the prisoners, and the oppressed. Sorry, this is actually not the right selection. Um, I'm going to go with that for now for a second, but um, I need you to actually go and look at my, uh, my uh... This one has no slides. Okay, somehow though, technically, go and go, can you bring the bag real quick? And yeah, the black one, there you go. Not the other one, the other one, yes. So, the other one, the other one, the other one, there you go. I didn't plan this, sorry about that, but uh, they'll get going in just a second. We have a little um, snack food. Today's uh, date. Okay. But I'm going to follow through and maybe use the slides that we do have for now. 
and that we're going to go back into the scripture. So we find that Jesus actually starts his ministry and he is traveling around and his notoriety has gained much fame. He is casting out demons, he's healing people, miracles, and he's teaching with authority. So he finally makes his around to his hometown. Can you imagine if you were a youth student or a growing up in children's ministry and people saw you all as this little kid and like, oh, you're that boy son, whatever. And then you go find and you become this incredibly spirit-anointed person. You come back and guess what? You get to preach a new vision. Ah, right? That's what's happening. He comes to his home church. And they're kind of like not knowing what to do with this guy because they know him. He is Joseph's son, Mary's son, the carpenter's son. They probably bullied him his whole life. And now he's come with this reputation with this swagger and he's actually given the the honored role of going ahead and speaking at the, at the synagogue so synagogue worship in many ways is a lot like ours they would start with prayers and with hymns and then they would center in on the scriptures they would have a, a reading pattern in a path and then they would pull out the scroll and they would give the kind of the privileged time to either somebody who's in the community or a traveling guest. And so Jesus comes and he is handed this role uh, as was his custom. And he, it's, the reading is in the, in the prophet of, uh, of Isaiah. And so he, he opens the scroll to the point where he actually plans and intends to speak on. And he begins to read from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners Recovery from the sight of the blind is set the oppressed free, free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, I'm going to switch out of this now. Are you up? So, as he actually, as he is um, yeah, proclaiming that, um, you get a sense of we have to unpack a little of what, what that passage was. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet actually is speaking to people who feel trapped. They've been in exile in Babylon for a long time. It's like they were captured as a people in experience of grave defeat, and they were brought over as slaves into a culture that's not their own, smelling food, hearing language that wasn't their own. Their national identity, their ethnic identity is under threat. And they've been praying, God, hear our prayers, bring us back home. You promised, you promised. They've been so trapped. They don't have the, the financial resources, they don't have the political resources to, to protect themselves and make a way. And in the midst of this, are we good? All right, thank you. In the midst of this, we find that um, the people uh, in, in the book of Isaiah are being promised by, being promised, um, by the prophet, that God is going to send a representative who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he is going to bring about incredible deliverance for the people who are feeling this sense of being trapped, being resource poor, being oppressed. And this is actually spoken to people who are in exile. So you're going to make it whole. You can actually later on, you're going to see that a garment of, of mourning and of, 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 uh, of grief is going to be replaced with a garment of praise. Their, their fortune is going to be completely reversed. They're going to be able to sing, and their, their crying and their sadness will be overtaken by joy. There's incredible promises as the prophet describes. But it's going to come first 
as his representative comes to proclaim, saying, something is starting to work. That God has his motions into place where the people who are trapped, resource poor, who are imprisoned, are going to experience incredible liberation. There are four peoples that are being described here. The first is a, that the Spirit of the Lord is going to anoint someone to proclaim good news to the poor. That word for good news actually is the same word for gospel that we usually use in Evangelion. It's the word that says good news. It is a, 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 a cosmos-changing, regime-changing word saying everything is going to shift for the sake of the poor. Now in our context, when we think we're poor, is like we don't have enough, we have a poverty level and so on and so forth. But when we think of the poor, we think oftentimes you're poor because either you're starting off that way or if you've been poor for a long time, it's your fault, right? Because um, in the United States, we believe in upward mobility. We believe that if you work really hard, you can make a life, you can, you can do well. We love the stories of those who say, I started with nothing and now I'm a millionaire. Those are the dreams, those are the reasons why immigrants have come to the United States. Uh, it's not that way anymore, by the way. You're finding that it's incredibly difficult to go and, and to kind of even make it into the middle class, much less beyond. Uh, the United States economics are working such that if you're poor, uh, your children are most likely going to be poor. That's the way it's always been, interestingly enough. That's the way it was back then. If you grew up, if you were born into a wealthy family, a family of power and authority, guess what? You don't have to worry about food. You're, you're living lavishly. But if you're born in a family like Jesus, I don't care how good a carpenter you are. I don't care how you know you you go on uh, like a carpentry show and, and everybody you know likes what you do and how fame famous you. You don't really ever break into a sense of wealth and a sense of abundance. You stay poor. Yeah, it's always that way. The poor feel trapped. I don't know if you kind of recognize that. Maybe you've been in circumstances where it feels like there's nothing you can do to actually get your family to a place where you're you're working more well. And there's a reason why when God looks at the poor, he actually says there's a virtue. Have you thought about that? Um, in the Old Testament, when he sees the poor, the vulnerable, he doesn't say, ah, you are that way because of your fault. He always says his heart reaches out for them. If you lend to the poor, God is so identified with the poor, and in fact he says, God now feels an obligation to repay you. He is so identified with them because he understands they're very much trapped. In the book of Luke, we find that when Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, blessed you are, these very counterintuitive words of, of, of blessing, of good coming to you, he says, blessed are you who are poor. In the book of Matthew, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. If you feel like you are poor, if you have this recognition that you are, you are, you are, you are poor in righteousness, you are poor in God, and you need more of it. But here it just assumes if you are poor financially, if you're part of that class, then you are poor in spirit. You feel trapped. There's no way out of it. You don't feel resource rich. You don't have hope. You're stuck. And that's why it's kind of understood in the book of Luke. If you're poor, you know you need deliverance. You need help. You can't get it out of this situation by yourself. And the beautiful thing Jesus says here, and also described in the book of Luke, um, chapter 4, our verses, that to the poor who feel so trapped are open to God, theirs is the kingdom of God. So this person is going to come in and proclaim good news to the poor. He's going to be sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. 
So in the original Isaiah context, they were in exile. They're stuck. There's nothing they can do. They have this force that's holding them, and they cannot lobby. They can't get out of the situation unless God does something. So they're crying out, God, hear our prayers. Bring us back home. Bring us back home. Um, I do want to recognize that those who were listening in his context would have understood. Who are the prisoners? In our setting, most people who are prisoners are, are in there because of either violent crimes or drug crimes. Um, there's a huge issue with mass incarceration in our country right now, but regardless, think about it. If somebody's in prison, you think it's their fault, right? It's their fault. Back then, you know who were most people in prison? Those who couldn't pay their debts. This is so messed up. If you can't pay back your debts, they throw you in prison where you can't work off your debt. Somebody has to come and save you, but if you don't have the backing, and somebody can't save you, you're stuck in prison until your debt's paid. This is kind of, a, I don't know why they did that. This, it's, not, it's not a very effective system. Um, but interestingly enough, the poor are the ones who get stuck in prison, and they stay poor. It's a, it's a, it's a reality of complete helplessness. Um, so it's the poor, the ones who are in prison. The recovery of sight for the blind, there is nothing that you could have done from the back in that time. You know, there were all these charlatans and people who said they could heal blindness, but there really wasn't anything. If you're blind, it's a life sentence. But God actually is saying, those who are physically blind as well as spiritually blind, these are the ones, the ones who are helpless. Now, um, I have really bad vision, I have contacts on, but if I took these contacts off, I couldn't even see the back row. You'd be like, I'm, I'm legally blind. But even then, I can still see, I can't imagine what it must feel like for somebody who has learned to depend upon their senses to go blind. Uh, what access you have. They didn't have seen eye dogs back then. What access you have. It, it is a sign that you are trapped in your own world. These are all both symbolic but real descriptions of people who are so trapped that God says, in my coming, I am going to set free. I'm going to turn the tables. I'm going to meet them. The most vulnerable, the most trapped, whether it's their fault or others, God's going to come. And he's the one, he's come for them. More than the ones who are already free. More than the ones who already have sight. More than the ones who already have resources. It's the ones who are sensitized to actually look for deliverance. To set the oppressed free, the ones who are stuck. So we're in this passage, and we're finding, in fact, Jesus is using these verses to say, not only I'm reading them, but in fact he's saying, later on, later on in the front, he's saying, these words are fulfilled in my speaking, in your ears as you're hearing But I want to spend just a, few, a few moments just talking about the last thing that he proclaims. He preaches, I've been said to preach good news, to proclaim good news to the poor, to actually to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, uh, sight for the blind and for those who are oppressed. The last proclamation that he gets to do is, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who knows what this is? It's a technical term. The year of the Lord's favor. Anybody heard that before? Okay. So when you read this, you're like, what does that mean? Well, it's nice. Oh, the Lord has favor on you. Okay. But actually, it's a technical term. The year of the Lord's favor is a specific year in a cycle of years. In fact, maybe they'll better understood by the word jubilee. Okay, we don't use that word a lot unless it's in a very certain kind of religious context. But in the Old Testament, there was this pattern, this cycle of 49 years. They would go through seven sevens, 
It was start counting in the book of Leviticus. And as you go through the seven sevens, seven years, another seven years, seven sevens is 49 years. At the 50th year, most likely his 50th could have been 49. They say, this is a special year. Something incredible is happening that's been planned, and this is the sign of it. You're supposed to lift up a trumpet, but actually in, our, in their day and age, it is the shofar. Okay? It, was, it was this ram's horn. Okay? I wanted to get a shofar and, and blow it for you. Right? That's what it sounds like. Okay, I have to be the cheap ghetto version because they're expensive, man. I couldn't find a cheap one, right? Uh, the shofar. The shofar actually was what you blew as a way of proclaiming this is a special day. Something's happening. And in the kingdom of God, in the Old Testament, on the day of Jubilee, three things happened. Okay, number one, every person who's trapped as a slave, you become a slave because you don't have enough money, you have to sell your own freedom to provide. Okay. Every person who's been a slave, immediately on that day, when you hear the, when you hear it, you're free. Okay. Isn't that amazing? All your debts are free. Okay. Now, who's got a lot of credit cards? You're not raising your hand. But if you know what I'm talking about, I know what it's like to have debt. I had student loans of the yin yang. And I couldn't make enough money to actually free myself. It was almost impossible. Uh, and to have actually helped actually free that, the day that that was off the books, you felt so free. But this is actually physical freedom. If you were a slave, and on this day, just because you heard the, you're done, you can go back home. No longer any obligation upon you. You are free. Those are the people, actually, not only does it happen when the trumpet runs, it's not just the physical liberty that happens for every slave. But it's also, if you had to sell your ancestral belongings, okay? In other words, you got into trouble and you had to sell your house, and it was no longer yours. God restore your home. Your wholeness. God restore your home. Okay? It kind of sucks for the people who bought it, because now it's like, wait a minute, you know? It's like every home was at least in some sense. Because God says, every piece of land is mine, you don't own it. But in, when it comes to the Jubilee, he's saying, I am restoring everybody's system. You can go back home. That's a huge thing. The third thing that they did um, in the book of Leviticus as well, as you find, when the trumpet was sounded, was they, in fact, um, yeah, it was personal liberty. Um, yeah, there it is. third thing they did was they were told, do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest in untended funds. They were told you can spend the whole year not working like crazy to build up your resources. You had to plan ahead for this. But you can actually spend that year in rest. It was a super Sabbath. A whole year, can you imagine that? A whole year where you don't have to work, right? If I had a whole year, I didn't have to work, I'd be traveling. I'd be sorry, bye bye. I'd be sending you uh, post postcards or Facebook messages from Ireland. I'm in, I'm in Italy, I'm in uh, Africa, I'm in Asia. Um, can you imagine what it would be like? This is a time of incredible celebration. If you were a slave, trapped and you're free. If you were homeless and your home was taken away from you, you get it back, right? Um, and it's a year where you get to celebrate and not even have to work. That's what the year of our Lord's favor is. 
That's what the uh, uh, jubilee meant. And Jesus, in his coming, says, As I am here proclaiming these words, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. Now, if you were there, you'd be like, oh, he's just being, you know, he's grandiose. He's just saying these things. But actually, that's, that's not just symbolic. Look what Jesus is doing. Every person who is trapped, who is stuck, okay, um, has no community, has not a sense of home with God or others. When he sees them, what does he do? He's liberating them. Every demon-possessed person is being freed. Every person who has illness is being freed from them. It is part of what he's about, what he's doing. We find that this passage actually orients us to what Christmas is about as well. He came as the vulnerable for the vulnerable. And it helps us to realize it's in those moments where we not only experience a sense of being trapped, but a sense of being poor in spirit. Maybe we're just poor in a poor in spirit. That's the moments the invitation comes. God sees us. He knows where we are. God doesn't blame us. He doesn't say you're on your own, but he's come to deliver us. The places where we are trapped. And ultimately, Jesus' coming is not simply for those who are financially or physically enslaved or trapped. He's come for those especially who are spiritually enslaved or trapped. The exile he's bringing us back from is not an exile from a country, on a foreign country, but an exile. Because they were living in their own land, but an exile from God. He's bringing them back home to God. But in his bringing people back home to God, he is freeing them from illnesses, he is freeing them from demons, he is freeing people from shame. The tax collectors, the lepers, and the, and the, um, and the prostitutes, he's bringing them into the home with God and people of God. It's a beautiful reminder of what the Jubilee was all about. So he's proclaiming this. This should be something that's in our minds. But it hasn't been for a long time in the church, in fact. When we actually go and talk, preach the gospel for a long time, there are historical reasons for this. Many of us, we, we talk about God, Jesus died for your sins. And if you, if you believe in Him, if you take Him as your Lord and Savior, right, then you have been made new. And this is all true. You've been made new from the inside. No longer are you entrapped by your sins. God loves you. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He gives you a life with Him and into eternity. But often we don't realize that he actually cares about not those who are spiritually enslaved, those actually who are experiencing the trappings of injustice and slavery. And so when we think about what it means that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners and those who are oppressed, it's not just spiritual. It is for those of us even in this room. But actually he's Really, he's not blind to us who are in experiencing real slavery, real, you know, oppression. And this is what we're finding out more and more these days, that our world is not in a good place. You know, I, I was in school and I, I, I learned slavery ended back in the 19th century with the Civil War, right? No, in fact, we're finding that human trafficking, which is a word for slavery, is rampant and growing. Numbers from anywhere from 20 to 23 million people, sorry, 45 million people, okay? 
45 million people in 167 countries. That's a lot of people who are in experience of some kind of forced indentured servitude or slavery. Um, and it's, it's nefarious, it's bad. The, it's the fastest growing business of organized crime, $150 billion if you watch TV, a lot of stories of you know people caught up and trapped in human trafficking, but it's a very real thing. It has a lot of different facets and sides. So some of them are stuck serving in a home, some of them are stuck doing difficult forced labor. Children are forced into labor, forced marriage, um, and some of them do like this. Okay, you have some debt, you have to work it off. They put in into place a situation where no matter how many hours you work, you never pay it off. It's kind of a, a, a bond in the labor. And the worst of all is women especially are, are captured and deceived and um, put into sex trafficking. If you hear some of these stories, and they're, they're, they're all over the place. One place you can go hear some of the stories is uh, what's I call International Justice Mission. And you find that these are real people experiencing these kinds of things. And it breaks your heart. It's the story of uh, Tayama and Vedran. We don't know the last names, but I don't even know where they're exactly from. But it means something to me because when I go to India, I met a lot of the friends. It's a very common name. Young couple who had a five-year-old daughter, and they were doing everything they could to take care of and trying to live a life. But there's not a lot of margin. And when their five-year-old daughter got sick, they didn't have the, the money to, to provide the, uh, the medicine for the daughter, and they didn't have resources. Okay. And so what did they do? They went to this guy who said, "Okay, I will give you the fifteen dollars you need. Fifteen dollars." to go ahead and buy the medicine, but then you have to come to work for them. They thought, hey, better than nothing, it's, it's, it's help. They got the medicine, got, the daughter got better, but for that $15, they were put into a, a cycle of service where they could never pay off. One year went by, and instead of the $15 being paid off, they incurred more debt. They were working themselves to the bone with the five-year-old, and they're feeling so trapped. It's two years go by. The third year, she gets pregnant with her second child and realizing, we have no life. We cannot get out of this trap. It's gonna be like this forever. How do we even provide for our second child? She got so desperate that in fact, she started telling all these people, please help us, please help us. We're trapped. This guy, has, the guy who did this, his nickname is The Beast. There are a lot of beasts out there. This is a very common story until that news went out to advocates who actually, with the help of the government, went and uh, they busted in, they freed them. And so there's the story of absolute release. And if you've ever felt what it's like to be trapped, not just for a couple days or a year, but to have this prospect that your whole life, you're actually in indentured servitude, you'll get a sense of what it must feel like to be freed. And it's not just a spiritual freedom, it's an actual freedom. I commend this organization and this website to you to learn about the, the breadth of human trafficking and that we have, this is a place for us, those who are in Christ, those who experience freedom in Him, to think about how does our proclaiming of the gospel meet those who are trapped like this. Our culture, our, our religious culture has separated the spiritual gospel and the social gospel. When Jesus does His work, when he is the anointed one to come, when he proclaims freedom, he actually cares for those who are truly trapped. There is no separation. There's a place for us to learn. 
this season what it means to join him as he says, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor is in place. Something has already been started. He is moving to free people in the big and in the small. Well, you might think, okay, that's India, that's Africa, that's even sometimes Europe, right? If you saw the movie Taken, right? Um, well, actually, it's this issue in the United States. It's actually really bad. All 50 states has cases and situations where, uh, you know, human trafficking, sex trafficking is happening. This is a figure coming from 2015. Every 10 minutes, a woman or child is trafficked to the United States for forced labor. My sermons usually run 30 to 40 minutes, right? So that's three or four women or children being, being forced into labor. Um, a second website or second organization I want to commend to you is one that works in our city. They work in New York and uh, they work specifically to go ahead and help women who are caught in sex trafficking not only escape and experience freedom, but even when they're out, that's still not free. If they don't have the resources, they don't have the, the support, the counseling, the skills to enrich their biblical life and going forward and the protection to do so. Restore is a great organization that does that. So if you have time during the season to think about, okay, I know what it feels like to then feel to be something vulnerable. Maybe if you don't, God is touching your heart with compassion for those who are feeling so trapped. These are two places where you can begin to learn and begin to, to partner. One more thing to kind of help us in our awareness of we're experiencing this. We are in some ways caught in the very system of human trafficking, whether we know it or not. It has to do with our commerce. It has to do with our mercy. Um, a lot of people know that, in fact, the reason why clothing is so cheap, okay, is because, like in instances like in Uzbekistan, it's really bad. Children are forced into going processing cotton. Cotton is a really hard process. And children are forced into this. So the cheap clothes that you get from these companies is cheap for a reason. Now, it's kind of very inconvenient to think of it that way. Like, you don't want to know the supply chain. You don't know, want to know, like, you know, because sometimes you have to avoid certain things. It's kind of more inconvenient, isn't it? But the reality is, this is real lives. There are real children. There are real people who are actually being forced into labor to provide the things that we are using. And in some ways, it makes us somewhat responsible. If you want to know some of the companies and get a better sense, it's not perfect, but there's this organization called Know the Chain. Really easy. Knowthechain.com. And it, it actually tracks the whole supply chain from factory to actual raw, raw material for the, for the kind of things that come to you. And they do it by vendor. They do it by company. And, you know, back even in the 80s and 90s, they were saying, Nike, you know, you use these, these sweatshops with these children and you do all the things that Nike's been trying to fix their supply chain. They're, they're not all the way there. It's hard to see, but Nike's actually kind of in the middle. They're like in the, in the, the Sorry, they're in the like 50, 60 range, 50, 60 kind of uh, uh, in the benchmark. Surprisingly, Adidas is doing really, really well. So if you're wearing Adidas, that is the company that actually has really worked through to move out all of the forced labor kind of uh, aspects of their supply chain. Lululemon is number two. So all you runners who go wear Lululemon, you must be a good wife. No wonder they're so expensive, right? <laughs> no. There's a reason why, okay? Um, and so on and so forth. Guess what? The ones that are really, really poor, in other words, who don't care and have included a lot of forced labor in the supply chain, is not just the companies like Skechers, 
is we're doing really bad. Or Foot Locker, right? Prada. Prada's horrible. That means they're really greedy. <laughs> they're selling to you really expensive stuff and they're using forced labor and they don't care. Yeah. There has to be some sense of conscience on our part. It's inconvenient because you don't want to say, oh man, I got a guilt trip from pastor, man, I can't wear my Prada anymore. Wake like, up Prada bags, I'm not trying to shame you, right? But think about it. This is, these are real lives. Our gospel has to count somewhere. Our lives before Christ have to count somewhere. And just because you wear a lot of Adidas doesn't mean that you're off the either. It's just a way of saying, there are ways to think about and to participate and to partner in the proclaiming of freedom. That has to be part of our gospel, especially this season when we're buying stuff, right? Maybe too late, that's okay. Um, we're gonna be buying stuff next year. We're gonna be buying some constantly. But think through, not just to get some sense of awareness, but how does your life echo the one who has come from the vulnerable, the ones who are trapped. This is a way for us to live this out, live out the gospel, both in helping people directly through our funds and through our prayers and through our involvement, um, maybe even in our city, but even through what we wear and what we buy. Well, Jesus actually does say, and it, it blows their minds, in fact, they don't like to hear it. What? You are the one who's saying that Jubilee year has come with your proclaiming it. Sometimes it feels that way. Just because we're preaching it, just because we are trying to identify with gestures of this is what Christ has come for, it doesn't feel like we've done much, does it? That's my frustration with being a pastor sometimes. You want to fix things, you want to make things happen, you want to solve the world's problems, but really the world's problems are too big. All you really can do is point. Not just with your words, but with your life. But those gestures have ripple effects. Those gestures can change hearts, can change systems. And Christ is in the midst of doing this, even through the acts of faith, of declaring it through what we purchase, declaring it through how we support these organizations, declaring it by putting pressure on where we can, identifying with the one who's so vulnerable. One last thing as we finish our question. You realize that Advent means Christ didn't come just to be born, but to live out experience of all our weakness and yet not sin. So that when he goes to the cross, he becomes a perfect sacrifice for us. That in our vulnerability, and even in the places that we lived out injustice upon others, we've sinned to hurt others, to make them feel trapped, when we come to God as righteousness for, what does He do? He showers us with love and deliverance. When He, in that passage, if you read carefully, it says, He's come to proclaim the Lord's favor. But if you read Isaiah chapter 60 more carefully, you find there's more going on here. Okay? In fact, Isaiah 60, uh, 1, sorry, uh, Jesus omits a part of the verse. He stops reading intentionally. It's supposed to go to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but he doesn't say this last phrase. And the day of vengeance of our God. That sounds scary, doesn't it? God has a day of vengeance for all these people who have oppressed, all the Gentile nations that have oppressed his people. 
God has is coming, like John the Baptist said, you know, with an axe to the roots of the tree. He's coming with like a like like fire to burn up. He's coming with vengeance for all those who did not care for the for their vulnerable ones. Okay? But he doesn't say that yet. Because his coming is two phase. In his first coming, he's calling all of those who experience this kind of vulnerability as well as those who caused it to turn their hearts to him. Even the tax collectors, who were the worst of the lot, get to come and experience deliverance. But when he comes again, those who have chosen to make money, power, their own self-masters, they experience a scary vengeance. That's a part of the gospel story we recognize. When we feel so poor and somebody has done it to us, sexual harassment in our workplace, when somebody's done it to us, they've cheated us, they've done horrible things, and they don't repent. God is not just, oh, nothing will happen to you. They will be given chances to repent and recognize their righteousness poor. But when he comes back again, those who have trusted him, walked with him, they're going to experience vindication. And those who only live out injustice of vengeance is coming. He is coming back. And we can put our trust in God for that. We can actually proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in light of that. Fire has been his being prayed.